Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, on DVD, and on Tubi. I'm Liz Manishaw, I'm a writer, director, producer, who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making others. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. On this Thursday throwback episode, we're going to play our interview from, with Stephen Bernstein from back from episode 109, which I could not remember how long ago we talked to Stephen, but it was a long time ago, way back in July 3rd, 2017. Stephen has shot a ton of, of amazing films from huge studio comedies like Half-Baked, Hello, all the way to Oscar winner Monster and all kinds of films in between. So it just felt like a good contrast to Checo's story because... This guy has like been on the big, big side of, of studio features forever. And I'm, I didn't really do a good job of checking what he's working on now, but I'm sure he's just got another movie, another show, another thing, like just going, going, going. So I just thought this was like a nice contrast to show like the, the two different ways that you can approach a DVD, a uh, DVD, <laughs> you can approach a DP career, but just, you know, one from somebody who's, you know, been doing it, you know, since the early nineties, I think. And then someone who, you know, has kind of come up in the last like, you know, 10, 15 years. So very, very interesting co- combination of stories, I think. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first, don't for- forget to check out our Patreon page. Go to www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is a way you can support the show. Make sure that it continues going. All the back episodes are on Patreon. So this is only just the Stephen Bernstein interview from this episode. But if you want to hear the whole thing, including Timothy I's like bibble babble, catch up, you know, set up, breakdown, whatever... You'll have to hear that only on the Patreon. But without any more bibble babble, here's our throwback interview with Stephen Bernstein. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks very much. Uh, Good morning to all of you. So we just met each other about five minutes ago. So can you help fill us in? Like, Give us a little one-minute bio to introduce yourself to us and to the audience. Uh, a one-minute uh, bio. Um, yeah, <laughs> keep it short. Uh, yeah, I'll cut out all the good good parts. Um, you know, I was best known for a very long time as a uh, cinematographer. Uh, shot films like uh, Water for Chocolate, uh, Noah Baumbach's early movies like Kicking and Screaming, and then the uh, Oscar-winning uh, Monster. Um, then went on to become a, a writer-director, uh, decoding Annie Parker with Helen Hunt, Samantha Morton. Uh, Rashida Jones, so on, and then uh, my new film, Dominion, with uh, John Malkovich, which is about to come out later this year. Awesome. Awesome. You skipped a whole bunch of middle stuff, like Waterboy yeah. and White and Chicks. Half-baked. And and half-baked. 
I mean, gosh, you know, like when I saw that you had DP'd Waterboy and Half-Baked, I was like, oh my God, I got to talk to this guy. This is amazing. I why love does, those movies. Why does this always happen? I, I'll go and speak to university sometime and I get, I get my most pretentious cell phone. So, you know, I want to impress and yeah. I start talking about the, the weighty issues of the creative process of writing and filmmaking and uh, get into some you know, serious issues about the examination of the creative process. And then I open it to questions. And invariably, the first question is, hey, uh, tell us about uh, half-baked. Uh, half-baked. That, that comes with the doper in the audience, of which there are usually a few. And uh, then that follows to, you know, white chicks and, uh, you know, water boy and discussions of uh, monster or semiology or structuralism or technical uh, uh, deconstruction of, of film never actually happens. Well, to me, it's fascinating that you had like this period where you're shooting all these big budget comedies. Um, but it doesn't seem like that defines you at all as a filmmaker. And I'm kind of curious to hear how did you fall into that? And was that something that you're lamenting at the time? Or was just like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. It's a different thing. Uh, you know, How did you become the go-to guy for those? Um, well, there's the the real answer, and there's the there's the official industry answer. The official industry answer was, uh, you know, I enjoy comedy and delighted in making these um, seminal uh, films that uh, raise the spirit collectively of the nation and of the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that wouldn't be uh, true. Uh, what <laughs> what, <laughs> what happens uh, is that you know we live lives of quiet uh, desperation and. Uh, you always want to make films, but you don't always have the opportunity to. And I came over from um, England, where I'd been living for uh, 25 years, and I'd done some uh, dark films that had received some attention. And I came to uh, Los Angeles, and uh, you know, I just thought it was going to be um, easy, and you pick and choose. And it is kind of easy, in that once you've reached a certain level, people start offering you jobs that pay large sums of money. Mm -hmm. But they don't always offer you jobs that are going to be creatively important. And, you know, you don't distinguish when you first arrive one from the other. You presume that you can jump backwards uh, and forwards. So you say, you know, I'll just do this. I'll make more money than I've ever made uh, in my life. And then I'll go back and do something uh, important uh, later. Right. But that's not the way it works. Um, the minute mm -hmm. you do something uh, here... Because there are so many, uh, you're identified as that guy or that woman or that person. And then people come back to you because you're a safe pair of hands. He's done comedies before. We can give him another comedy. We know he won't screw it up. So you think that your career and your life has a direction. And in fact, it's really determined by almost arbitrary decisions that you make early on. Look, I really enjoy the Wayans. They're, they're, they became close friends. We had a great time. Adam Sandler genuinely is a good human being. I did have a lot of uh, fun on those shoots and made an enormous, uh, you know, sum of money. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but did it satisfy your soul? It, you know, honestly, it, it, it wasn't what I was, uh, you know, destined um, you know, to be or to do. It's, it's not ultimately what I wanted to do. And it was a very hard thing to uh, then get out of because people presume, particularly with cinematography, that if you do comedy, you're not really a very good cinematographer because how hard is it to shoot uh, comedy? Um, you know, <laughs> right. It's a curious, curious thing. So how did you then like do what everyone can't really do a lot of the time, break out of that mold and then do a movie like Monster that goes on to win an Oscar and all that? How did you make that like after doing these big budget studio comedies? How did you get out of it? Well, look, that's where my my back when, background was in literature. Uh, when I first started my training, it was at the BBC. I was trained as a, a writer and director. So uh, I had the, the language, the argo, the uh, I could talk the game. So when people would talk to me about film, 
you know, I would talk about uh, Hitchcock. I would talk about uh, the Nouveau Vague. I would talk about uh, all those things which uh, serious filmmakers really wanted to examine and to discuss. So when I would meet those directors who were doing important films, despite the strange anomaly of them looking at my resume saying, do I really want to hire this guy? Uh, I, I talked in such a way that they did want to hire me, I guess. And then the films I did before the comedies would further, uh, you know, encourage them. So they would feel they would have, and look, this is going to be a very arrogant um, uh, self-reference here. It's probably not true. But they felt they were hiring an intellectual uh, cinematographer. <laughs> and then, you know, the most obvious thing is that I took a huge, uh, you know, cut in wages. Uh, uh, the, the big moment came, I guess, uh, when I was doing SWAT. I was doing the second unit action stuff on SWAT. You know, 20 cameras, um, everything you think that you want. And that's the, the weird thing about film. <laughs> I love that. You, yeah. uh -huh. The things you think you want uh, aren't always what you really want. And, and I, we were blowing up the front of the, the post office in um, sorry, the library in Los Angeles and we had sugar glass and we had stunt people and the cars were being shot 30 foot in the air and there was smoke. And of course... There has to be a helicopter, and there was a helicopter, a real one, and then a three-quarter size model that we could, of course, you know, blow up. And um, I was so depressed, I was thinking of jumping off the Third Street Bridge, thinking, uh, I've got everything I want, and I'm not happy. What's yeah. wrong with this picture? And got a call from a friend of mine, Clark Peterson, who said, look, uh, we're having a little trouble down here, um, and can you come down and uh, help us uh, kind of reconstruct uh, this film that we're doing, this very small independent Read the script. Uh, spoke to uh, Patty Jenkins, who uh, you know anyone would follow anywhere uh, about her vision, and it was her first movie. And uh, with the permission of the producers from uh, SWAT, I left that uh, high, very high-paying job and went to a very, very low-paying job uh, in Orlando. And then um, the outer environs of Orlando, which are not so salubrious, stayed in the cheapest hotels uh, that the producers could find. Um, and working with no budget on making a monster, which um, uh, won the Oscar. Yeah, crazy. That's so cool. It's awesome that you found that 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 um, you know opportunity came to you right at the moment where you when you needed that opportunity. You know, to be, like be in that situation where you're just like can't even stand the, what you're doing, and like you're and you're upset by it because it's like it should be everything you want, right? And then like to get this opportunity that is this other thing. I mean, that's pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, and, and it's the decision I think that we all like have to make daily uh, as we do this because it's so hard to become a filmmaker. I don't want to say so hard because everyone who makes films says it's hard because that way we're more valuable because we achieved it and you haven't. You know that sort of thing. But 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 uh, it really is hard. And and then you want to live and uh, you might have a child as I had and you, you want to feed them. So you're constantly being offered uh, money for different things. Sometimes they're good projects, sometimes they're bad projects. And then something will come along that you believe in and you think, oh, well, you know, this is going to pay a lot less. Should I be doing this? And do I really believe in what I say I believe in? Or do I really just want to come here and make a, a lot of money and you know, buy a boat and a plane and you know, all the rest mm -hmm. of it? So it's, uh, it's tough to make the right decision um, all the time. And then what compounds it um, is that nine out of ten people speak to you in film will be lying to you. Um, they may they not be intentionally lying to you. Someone may have told them a lie about the money they have for their imagined project. So they believe it, and then they repeat the lie that was told to them. So now you're making decisions that aren't predicated on anything that's real or true, and you're trying to make a determination about your future in your life, and you want to make money at the same time. You want to have integrity. Uh, it's 
not always easy. Wow. That was a loaded sentence. Um, <laughs> um, well, I guess now you, you forced me to ask a sub question. Um, like, how do you how do you navigate that? Like, if, if, if you know that, like, oftentimes people aren't speaking the truth to you just based on the nature of the business, how what, what are some ways that you navigate that? It's a great question. Um, it's a funny conundrum um, here in Los Angeles in that. It's not considered rude to tell a lie. It's only considered rude if you say to someone who's lying to you that they're lying. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing. So you get onto a phone call and you hear someone saying, uh, yeah, I've got this actor. We've got uh, $5 million or a $1 million or $500,000. And you're thinking to yourself, it's really unlikely they have this actor. It's really unlikely they have this money. <laughs> but there's a chance they might. So I'm not going to say to them, that's not possible, um, you're lying, because you get accused of two things. One, you're considered being rude, and then, worst of all, you're considered being negative. Because if you're not buying into someone's lie, lie you're not being a positive person, and everybody, <laughs> everybody out here wants to be positive. So then you enter this sort of Kafka-esque world where uh, you know they're lying, they know you know they're lying, but you all just agree to continue the conversation about the imagined film that probably will never happen, on the off chance that it might, and you might get to do a film that A, you either believe in, or B, that will pay you a lot of money. Mm, that's amazing. Fascinating. Am I, am, am I being too negative? I'm, I'm, no, no, I love it. Honest, it's great. It's so funny. Okay, I'm dying to ask. Like, oh, no. what do you say to filmmakers like Alric and I, who live in San Francisco? We've we have not moved to LA, Good. and we want to make a career out of filmmaking. Do you think we're being stupid by not being in LA? Or now that you've been to LA and you've been pulled into the studio system, and now you're trying to do kind of some something a little bit different, are we in the right place? Like, what's your opinion on this whole thing? You know, it, it, it's a great and important question. Um, I I think that uh, the industry's ch- and actually, well, we shouldn't call it the industry because we're 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 making art most of the time. But you know, people insist on calling it the industry. Um, uh, and the, by the way, the number of times people have said to me, uh, "Remember, it's show business," um, and <laughs> right. you know, it makes you slightly um, you cringe, uh, sick into your into your mouth. Um, but uh, I think ultimately uh, Los Angeles offers opportunity because there's there's money here and there's mm-hmm. the opportunity to meet the uh, distributors and and the sales agents and the producers. But I note that for my next project, the majority of people that I'm speaking to are probably not in Los Angeles. Some are in, in Europe, some in England, some in Canada. Sources of money can come from. Um, anywhere. The important thing is to have some sort of production team available to you. You want cinematographers, sound recorders, props, uh, wardrobe. Uh, and the great thing that Los Angeles or New York or London or Paris accords you is access to those things. But if you're really making films and you care about films, you want a certain amount of creative stimulation. And you want the stimulation to come from sources that are uh, oblique that are uh, not typical. And if you're in Los Angeles, we're all subject to the same stimuli here. So first I would say to any writer, uh, is it the right thing to come to Los Angeles? Maybe not, because you may acquire a unique vision of the world from the environment that you're currently in, uh, and you'll be subject to different stimuli. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it's very hard not to be compromised when you come to uh, Los Angeles. Um, 
I, I came with some level of integrity, I thought, and I was compromised or co-opted without even knowing it because it's seductive. You get to work on a studio film, you get offered those large sums of monies, um, you get to work with all the toys and things, uh, some famous people, and it seems that you're living the dream. But just try to remember what the dream is. Is it creative expression or is it to be, uh, as my uh, wife calls me, a C-plus celebrity? so basically are you saying that like if you have the tools like the crews the camera um you know the the resources to make your movies that you don't necessarily need to be in la uh to do so i don't i don't think you have to be but do make sure you have the tools because you just want one cinematographer or one costume designer. You want five, six, seven, ten, twenty to compete with them to compete against each other, and then you can find out which one's the best or which one's <laughs> the most appropriate for your project. Because right. uh, in smaller uh, markets, you sometimes um, meet the one designer or one of the three cinematographers, and they may not be the best for your project. Right. So that's the other great thing about Los Angeles is you have a a large resource that you can pick and choose and come up with the best people that you can possibly choose to make your films yeah right i think it's uh there's no perfect place for anyone and there's going to be pros and cons no matter where you choose right yeah exactly the actors is another thing look in california right now we have a a tax credit and some smaller films uh will rely on that uh, tax credit um, and that's a good thing but the tax credit has a cap on it and you won't necessarily get it but the great thing about shooting in California generally is that uh, if you go to Georgia, for example, your actors uh, won't count against the tax credit there. Uh, so if the majority of your budget are the actors, you're going to be losing money by shooting out of California. So if you're not living in California and you were to move here and then you were to hire two or three actors to appear in your film, uh, you're getting money basically to make your film because they will count against the tax credit, whereas in another state they won't. You've got to fly them in, you've got to house them. And again, if we see film as kind of a commodity, something that has to be uh, sold, then those actors matter. And if you're shooting in Michigan or you're shooting in Oregon or you're shooting in Massachusetts, you're probably going to have to fly actors in probably from California. And that means housing them, paying them per diem, um, all the rest of it. And it could make your film prohibitively uh, expensive. Um, you may make uh, your film with unknown people and your film may get discovered. But again, we back to that conundrum. It's harder to make a film with unknown actors right. uh, and get it distributed than with known actors. But the minute you get the known actors, you get into all the compromises that come with spending more money. Right. Right. <laughs> How do you get the actors and keep your budget low, you know, keep it under half a million or something and get the good actors? That's what I'm trying to figure out. You uh, know, it's really, it's, that's really easy. That, that, that's something I have figured out. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> half a million may be a little bit ambitious, but keeping it really low because my uh, first film was, was a fairly low budget film. My, my next one after that wasn't huge. Um, actors uh, care about acting. Um, um, all of them, I think. Uh, some maybe only aspire to being celebrities, but I, I think their career arc tends to be uh, rather short and rather limited, and they get identified for what they are fairly early on. But if we just, again, look at this commodity analysis, and I, I don't want to see artists as commodities, but let's do that for a second. Uh, an actor cares about their brand, and they want to be regarded as a good actor as well as a known actor. And to be a 
good actor, you have to have good material and good scripts. And a good actor, or any actor who aspires to be a good actor, is willing to compromise or even surrender the large salaries they typically earn to be in a project that has a good script about something important. Mm -hmm. An example, my film, uh, Decoding Annie Parker, was about breast cancer. Uh, and we spent a lot of time, my son and I, writing that script, and we wrote what turned out to be regarded as, as a good script. People thought the dialogue was good, good character arcs, uh, and about important issues. It was surprising to me that when we went to actors, how many volunteered to be in the film, and actors that mattered, because they wanted to be in a film that made a difference in the lives of uh, women and of men. They wanted to be uh, in a project with a script that was uh, uh, important and well-written, uh, and that they could really get into a character and do a great portrayal that demonstrated their, their skill set. Right. Um, and also, they met in me a director who believed very much in certain styles of, of acting. We would uh, do a lot of improvisation. We would do a lot of backstory to build the character. It was very actor-centric, uh, the way my process worked then and continues to work. So now when I meet with actors, and then when I was meeting with actors, I would say, look, here's my creative process. Uh, this is going to be very much about facilitating you as performers. Secondly, we're making a film about something that's really important. And third, we've created in the script characters that are compelling and complex, but we can't afford to pay you more than scale or what's called Schedule F, which is a very, very low level of pay. Would you still be in this film and participate in this important, edifying, and fun project? And amazingly, I got some of the biggest actors, I think, in the world, certainly you know, Oscar winners and Oscar nominees, to agree to be in it. Here's mm -hmm. what's remarkable, is most people never approach good actors because they presume they'll say no. In my experience, good actors say yes to good projects, however small they are. Well, you have an advantage over us, though. You probably have access to talk to good actors. We have no agents. We have no connections. How are we going to get in touch with John Malkovich? Uh, another great question. Um, you know, there's a couple ways. Casting directors are the great uh, conduit. And people, again, presume that casting directors are either going to charge you a fortune or simply not even take a meeting with you. And that's not the case. Uh, casting directors of all reputations and stripes and experiences are always looking for new projects. And if you find a casting director either here in L.A. or in New York or anywhere who reads your script and likes it, they might work for you on spec or for a very, very low wage. And with casting directors, they have access to absolutely everybody. So once you reach them, they can be the conduit to reach all the actors that you want or desire. Hmm. Interesting. I sense you're not believing. I just sense the doubt yeah. in your voice. I get, I get it. You're trying to <laughs> just no. say, no, it's well. not that easy. You're in L.A. You know everybody. Um, you're going to parties. <laughs> you're doing lines of coke together. And then you say, hey, get me this great actor. None of that really is, uh, is, is, is true. I, I was amazed uh, that uh, through like a friend of a friend of a friend, uh, I got connected with uh, Mary Venu, who's one of the bigger casting directors in the world. And Mary read the script 
And uh, I met with her, and I said, Mary, I've got no money. She said, um, now, she'll kill me for this, because now 10,000 people tomorrow <laughs> are going to be r ringing her up. And, and exactly. Mary, and i got to tell you, Mary's booked for like the next three years, so please don't do that to Leave her. Leave her she, alone, people. <laughs> but uh, people like her. And she said, this is an important script. I really like the writing. Uh, let me help you. And she helped me. And I wow. don't believe at that point I had paid her um, anything. Uh, paid her a lot later, but once we got the money, but paid her nothing then because she believed in the script and because I met her via another person. Now, that's another advantage of L.A. Uh, is that you don't always get projects made here, but you do have a network of connections that you build just by living here who can connect you, uh, you know, through one person who connects you to another and then ultimately to the people you need to meet. Right. So were you DPing for roughly like 30 years before you decided to switch over to directing? Um, kind of. It was a little bit uh, backwards. In that Originally, I was trained as a, a writer-director, and then because of the way the BBC was set up, they would send out directors um, who would uh, also do cinematography when you're doing like long-form documentary in foreign places. So I went to China, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, S South Africa, what was then called uh, Rhodesia, which became... Um, Zimbabwe, uh, Nicaragua, everywhere. And uh, it was interesting, but not, again, you know, my particular calling. Um, I, I guess a recurring theme here is that it seems I'll do pretty much anything for money. And that's not, in fact, the case. Uh, I kind of would do anything uh, because I was never certain as to what my identity was. So I kept trying things, like thinking, oh, yeah, travel, um, doing political documentary, that sounds right. And no, that wasn't right. And I said, write a director, that always seemed right. But then something strange happened. I went back to England, reassigned to England, and someone came to me with an idea that they wanted to film a band. And the idea is that you film the band, and then you take it to a record company. The record company can look at the filming of the band and decide whether they want to sign them or not. And I said, wow, what a great idea. I've got a 16-millimeter camera. Uh, I'll film this. And then uh, we heard about another band that was better known, and we filmed them, and then that ended up on top of the pops in the UK. And then all of a sudden, the uh, music video phenomena uh, overtook uh, England and then shortly thereafter the rest of the world. And I was shooting you know, huge uh, music videos as a, as a cinematographer, as a, what was called a lighting cameraman in those days. So uh, again, another accident. And uh, I began doing that. And that led to some films in England. Then um, uh, Chivo uh, had to leave um, like Water for Chocolate in uh, Mexico. And the job was offered to another friend of mine, Gabriel Beristain, another big DP. And he said he couldn't do it. Would I be interested in going to uh, Mexico for a couple of weeks just to finish up a movie? And I said, oh, that sounds easy. And again, a travel. So off I went. And seven months later, <laughs> we, had finished, uh, we had finished like Water for Chocolate. I came back. and <laughs> That's a whole other story, a whole other podcast to hear <laughs> yeah. why it took seven months to finish a movie that was going to take two weeks or whatever. I mean, well, one, you know, we, we, we ran over one of our actors uh, uh, with a truck, uh, you know, broke his foot. So then he argued with the director and had to leave. The house we had built in the desert um, blew down in a, in a storm. And uh, Alfonso, who's a great, courageous uh, man, kept running out of money. So, um, you know, I would ask him how the dailies were. He said they were great. Uh, and he kept saying they were great, but he never showed me the dailies. Finally, I rang the, the lab in, in uh, San Antonio. I said, hey, I, the dailies are great. What are they looking like? And I said, well, 
I don't know who's telling you the dailies are great. Um, they can't pay us, so we haven't processed any of your film for <laughs> the last last two months. So, <laughs> so, so that was um, that was how the the project went. Uh, you know, up and down, and you know, I was certain of all the projects I've worked in that would never see the light of day, and it became the highest grossing foreign language film of all time. So, that shows what I know. So basically, you're saying that, like, kind of from the beginning, you've always kind of were going towards being a writer director, but then you just kind of got sidetracked into this life of a cinematographer for a long time. And I mean, was it something that you always wanted to do, like go back and direct, or was it kind of like after, you know, after doing all these movies and after Monster, was there like a, an epiphany moment where you're like, no, I need to go and direct my own movies, or was it something that was always in your head? You know. Um Another great question. Uh, I, I would love to pretend that I always had a clear vision of my life and career, uh, but I didn't. Uh, you know, I uh, there's a difference between taking opportunity and being an opportunist. Uh, but it's probably a nuance that, if you examine my own life, that we we probably couldn't uh, work out what that nuance was. But uh, I was uh, desperate to work in film, and then would take what opportunities presented themselves to me. Mm -hmm. I think as I grew older. Uh, I grew frustrated with uh, working with <laughs> with directors who didn't always seem that interested in all of the complexities of direction. They seemed, again, they wanted to show up. They wanted to be identified as directors. They wanted the kudos uh, and the celebrity of being a director, but they really weren't interested in, for example, working with actors and how to get the best performance from an actor. They weren't interested talking about cinematography, about how to use a composition to create an idea, how to use lighting to create a feeling in an audience. All those great ways we have of encoding complex ideas in a subconscious way through the use of the medium, these directors really weren't interested in it. And I found that really frustrating. So I wanted to make movies. And I thought that by being a cinematographer, I could still make movies. But it was too frustrating to be once removed from the principal decision-making. So I said, even though directing is nightmarish as an occupation, because you only get to direct once every four years if you're doing films of any sort of size, uh, right. and so most of the time as a director you're not working, which is doesn't seem like a great career choice, still creatively, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was so much more satisfying than cinematography. I love cinematography. I love uh, creating a compelling and important image. I, I love being the only cinematographer that ever managed to make Charlize Theron look bad. I mean, that's a great... <laughs> yeah, that's congratulations. A, uh, thanks yeah. very much. It wasn't easy, <laughs> but uh, we, we achieved it. But uh, at the same time, uh, creatively, in terms of satisfaction, uh, I had to write and I had to direct. Wow. So when, when did you finally decide that it was time. Was it like after White Chicks or, or <laughs> when, when was it? I like that that's the movie you pointed at. It I don't know. I, I was trying to remember what the, 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 the film list was, his filmography was. Can I, can, I, can I just tell you, White Chicks is a beautifully photographed uh, film. And uh, Keen Ivory Wayans is one of the most uh, evolved, sophisticated, generous, and kind people you ever hope to uh, meet. And all his shoots really, and this isn't, you know, the, the film industry patois, are just fun. I mean, we laugh from the minute we arrive to the minute the, you know, we, we, we rap. And there's something to be said for that experience. And Keenan taught me a lot about directing. And one of those things is that uh, the atmosphere you engender on set invariably ends up on, on uh, the screen. I also learned it from Patty Jenkins on, on Monster. There was a day where 
uh, the crew, and this is rough and tumble local crew in, in, in Florida, some people from Los Angeles. And there's a big moment coming between Charlize and Christina when they were going to say goodbye to each other. And spontaneously, and I mean spontaneously, the grips, the electrics, the, the drivers, everybody, decided that we needed to create a mood that would facilitate the performance. And everyone agreed not to speak for the rest of the day. Honestly, on a wow. feature film, the actors, the, the crew, uh, were signaling each other, occasionally whispering, moving things silently, so these two remarkable actors could get into the space they needed to be. Now, how often do you see or hear of that actually happening on a film? And it went to the integrity and vision of Patty Jenkins, who we all believed and followed, uh, of, of Charlize, of Christina. We knew that they cared about they were doing, and that uh, is the thing that inspires others to follow. When you have a vision and a belief in what you're doing, others will acquire that belief. Cynicism is the thing that people use more generally in conversation. You know, we don't believe in anything. Um, everybody's horrible. We tend to be negative. But when you work with a person of real vision who believes in what they're doing, for all the sarcastic things that we can say behind their back, ultimately, they lead us because they believe in something. Right. So you asked my seminal moment. It was on, it was on Monster. Uh, it was seeing Patty, uh, who I adore uh, and respect, uh, and Charlize, doing something for very little money, against all odds, that they believed in. And I said, oh, yeah, this is how I started. This is where it began. This is why I want to be involved in what I still consider an art. I want to do something important. I want to make a difference in other people's lives. And I want to use my voice uh, to say things in my particular way. You know, I'm very proud of my writing. I write in a, an unusual way and with an unusual methodology, uh, and it works for me. And when people read my scripts, uh, it is my unique voice. I'm not saying it's better, uh, just that it's different. And most importantly, it, it's me. Um, I found a, a method to express uh, my, my inner self, my inner demons, and uh, my inner inspiration. So that was the moment, I think, uh, of, of uh, that film and that moment on that film where I came again to believe in doing something uh, bigger than myself and bigger than the money I could make on studio movies. And then right after you shot Monster, you went to White Chicks, and then you got really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Would you We're stop trying to pick, throw White Chicks stop, in here somehow. Stop, stop picking up on the way. I, know, it's, um, I don't know why. White, white Chicks, you know, again, <laughs> I, when I speak elsewhere, it's one of those films that everybody, uh, you know, bring, brings up. And... Um, Actually, it's really funny, um, and we discovered some you know magical people on that film. Uh, Terry Crews. Terry Crews was a oh. kind of uh, unknown guy, and he was working uh, as a bouncer at the comedy store on Sunset. He was ex footballer, and he met uh, Keenan and the the guys, the family, uh, and they really liked him. So they thought they would give him some small role uh, in the film. And you know, he plays this uh, football in the film. He's really into white women and. And uh, he's uh, trying to give a drug to a girl. He takes it himself. And um, uh, he then does a dance in the film, which is hilarious. What a lot of people don't realize is that a K uh, the attention was to use a, a double to do the dancing because we just presumed that, you know, Terry could deliver a line and that would be it. And then we go to the dancing from a professional dancer. But Terry had been secretly practicing his uh, <laughs> crazy dance for in his room for like uh, two months, uh, and then in the hotel room when he came to set, and we rolled cameras, and it was it was film imitating film rather than life imitating life, because we we began to roll cameras, and Keenan would say, "We'll do about a minute of t uh, Terry, and then we'll we'll bring in uh, the dancers," 
and we began rolling and then Terry went into this genius crazy remarkable raver dance and everybody <laughs> outside the the purview of the camera stopped and turned and looked and it was so remarkable that like in a movie like in a Frank Capra movie when it finished everyone applauded for an interminable length of time it was unimaginable uh, and then we did it again with Terry and again with Terry and a star was born and went from that to strength to strength and became uh, not only a great actor but again in terms of ordinary decent people uh, one of the best people I've ever met in the industry Wow, awesome! I for for the for just for the record, I haven't actually seen White Chicks, so I shouldn't make fun of it too much. <laughs> no, uh, I haven't but, either. Anyways. It's it's just one of those movies that you. I remember seeing the trailer and just being like, "Oh, really?" It's an important discourse and examination of uh, race relations and and, and uh, uh, sexuality in contemporary American culture. And you thought it was a comedy. Yeah, here, all this time I thought it was just a silly comedy. So I, I have a question about comedy since you've been on a lot of comedy sets. If the crew is laughing, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Because I've heard mixed things about like if people are laughing on set, it doesn't translate into laughs in the theater and like vice versa. That sometimes things that aren't funny on set end up being funny when it's edited in, yeah. in the movie. Uh, I would, um, I, I, I tend to agree, not so much with. Uh, comedy, but with performance more generally, that if an actor does a really moving and powerful performance, and the director's crying, the continuity person's crying, the cinematographer's crying, um, everyone hugs each other afterwards. You say, "Wow, that performance was tremendous." Generally, the performance is way too big, uh, and mm -hmm. will seem contrived and artificial on 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 uh, on the screen. So I tend to try to distance myself from the performance when I'm directing an actor and try to imagine what it's going to be like when we cut it to with all the other pieces and whether ultimately there's a truth there rather than the mechanism of acting. You know, it's in theater, we admire the mechanism of acting. We see an actor doing uh, their skill set or using their skill set and say, wow, that's, that's admirable. They really know how to act. There's certain actors who do that who we recognize that they're not really the character but my God, they're gifted in using their skill set. But that separates us from the truth of what we believe our characters should be. We want the characters to be genuine like we are in life. Right. So uh, you want to do that test when you're examining performance. And I think the same is true of comedy. The difference between comedy and farce, and I've worked on both, <laughs> is that uh, comedy is based on truth. Uh, whereas farce is based on like an altered reality. Like if the world was this, which it isn't, wouldn't that be funny? And so farce is, a, uh, is something that people can laugh at on set or on screen, and you get it. The banana peel, the someone flatulating, and I've worked on lots of films where people are flatulating or farting. Mm -hmm. you know, Always um, hilarious. You, you, can't, yes. you can't help it, uh, but, but, you, but you laugh. <laughs> but comedy is, again, something different, and you want the, the truth of the humanity of the character to get people to laugh, but there's something more profound happening there as well, where we recognize uh, they are like us, and there's a pathos as well as laughter. Mm, I like that. Yeah, because I'm directing something that's comedy-based right now, and there's a part of me that's like just wants to laugh while I'm shooting it and see it and be like, that's so funny. And then part of me that's just like, sometimes if I'm laughing, I'm kind of laughing for the wrong reasons. And I agree with you that comedy comes from being able to relate to somebody else and, and say, oh, that I can see myself in that situation. And it's like, it's a, it's... It's something that's we all share commonly, and it's not just laughing at somebody and making fun of them, but more about like the shared experience of being human. I think you're exactly right, and that's a really good note for writing as well. Uh, look, I am one of those people, sadly, um, who likes to be liked. 
um, I want validation. I think ultimately to do anything important, you have to kind of rise above that and not be so concerned about validation as you are about truth and insight. Uh, the interesting thing about film is it is an art that relies on validation because we have to get people to go see our movies. So we have this strange dynamic where we have an obligation to tell the truth. At the same time, we want the validation of the audience liking our films and buying tickets to see it. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing, when I'm writing, um, I will occasionally put in a joke or some humorous sequence because there's nothing more satisfying for media gratification and validation than when you're sitting in the back of a cinema and people look at your film and they're laughing. And you think, oh, okay, they like it, they like me, uh, all's right with the world. But what I've discovered in the editing room on these movies is that very often those sequences that are the funniest are the least appropriate for the film that I just made. And I've compromised myself, my characters, my actors, by playing for the laugh mm -hmm. rather than for the truth. So now when I write, before I put anything that will obviously elicit a reaction or a laugh, I have to consider, is it right for the film, right for the character, is it truthful? And I think that's also true of directing, is that, you know, is this person still real when they're uh, making us laugh? That's, I think, essential. I like it. So, Auric, your next section has to do with Steve's first feature. Do you want to yeah. you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, I'm 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 really curious. Like, you know, I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things. But like, you know, the the big question is, you know, how did you get your first feature made? But the sub question is, you know, could you have done it without your career as a DP, or was that like vital to like getting? I mean, obviously the answer must be yes, right? But I just want to kind of want to hear about how that process went down. Well, it's interesting. I, I honestly don't know uh, whether uh, my career as a DP helped or not. It sometimes was a detriment because uh, very often people will trust an unknown commodity more than they'll trust a known commodity that seems to have an inappropriate experience. So it's frustrating for me sometimes, even now, as I try to put my other projects together, and I've got another one coming up, fortunately, but uh, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, we just invested in another film. It's a 22-year-old director. He's not done anything yet, but he did a short that was really good, and we're going to back him. I'm thinking, guys, I've worked on 40 feature films. I've shot over 100 <laughs> commercials. I wrote a book about film. I was yeah. a cinematographer. I worked with some of the best actors in the world. I worked in the theater for, like, uh, you know, 30 years. Uh, don't you want somebody who has that experience? But again, uh, important life lesson is that you know, the pie of life is big um, and it's not a pie. So just because someone else gets a piece doesn't mean that you won't as well. So uh, you know, never uh, uh, begrudge other people's uh, you know, s s success. Putting together uh, the film uh, was, uh, Decoding Annie Park was really very, very hard. Uh, I thought, we thought, that we had money right after Monster in Canada from a source there who uh, were going to give us a million dollars, which seemed like a fortune at the time. And it is a fortune for a lot of filmmakers. And we yeah. could make, make the movie. And then what happens is, was what so often happens, is that people presume that there's a single model for how a movie's made. And the model's something like this. Uh, you get a big actor who has a verifiable and predetermined box office and that you use that actor who you attach to your project. An attachment is a term often used that basically means that you've got an actor to kind of vaguely promise they might be in your film someday in the future, but you can run around lying about uh, their commitment and saying, look, 
they, they're, they're, they're attached to our project. Would you put money into my project if I have this actor who's got this proven, proven box office? The problem with that model is, first of all, no good actor is going to, it's not an absolute rule, but generally, is going to attach or really contract to a film project or even read a script that doesn't have money already. You've got to have all your money. Otherwise, you can't get to good actors because the good actors, the actors that matter in this model, the actors that can get you pre-sales, everybody's pursuing those same 50 actors and 40 actresses, everybody. And they don't have time to read every script, good and bad, that's sent to them. And their agents and their managers make sure that they never get to them if they're not financed. Um, so I didn't want to follow that model. But these people in Canada who were promising me the money, having first uh, bought the option to my script, then said, great, let's make this film. And we think maybe we should get Rennie Zellweger or um, maybe Julia Roberts to be in this movie. And I said, hold on. Um, you're going to give me less than a million dollars and you will actually only pull the trigger on it if I get Ray Zellweger or Julia Roberts or something like that. <laughs> and they said yes. Because to them, what a great model. I can use my experience as a cinematographer in their minds to get access to all these uh, heavyweight uh, uh, actors and actresses. And they would sign for like no money and we do a film for a million dollars with an actress that would guarantee a $10 million box office and they would make a fortune. Yeah. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't work that way because, again, these actors and actresses generally are not going to sign up for a uh, million-dollar film either, unless uh, they believe in the vision and the script and all the rest of it. And actors at that, that stratosphere, you're going to have a harder time um, getting. So, uh, we, a long battle ensued with them. I got the script back, and then I changed the model. And this is the key thing. Um, and I changed the model by saying, you know, what I've got to do is I've got to raise all the money first. And it can't be cast contingent. I have to get investors to believe in my vision of the film and of my model. And my model is this. If you get the money first, and if you can determine a shooting date and say, I am shooting on this date with this money, then you can go to actors and their agents and say, hey, we are shooting. And normally the agents will say, well, I know you're not because you probably don't have the money and you want to attach an actor. It's not going to happen. You say, no, 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 no. I have, I the, have money. the money. I have <laughs> the shooting. I have the shooting date, and I need your actor for two days or three days on these dates. Are they working on those dates? And he, the remarkable thing that happens because the agent or manager looks and says, "Well, you know, my actor's not working on those days," so they could stay at home in their palatial Beverly Hills estate or wherever they live, um, and sit by the pool, uh, probably reading scripts, or they can work, get paid, and work on an important movie about an important issue with a director who believes in creating an atmosphere that facilitates great performance. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, once I raised that money, and it took a couple of years to raise that money, once I fixed my shooting date, I fixed an exact shooting date, I went to uh, actors and agents, with Mary Renew helping me, uh, at that point without charge, and we got the script to great actors, they responded to the writing, they knew the shooting dates, they were available on those dates, and they signed up. So uh, was it easy? No. Is it raising the money without actors uh, incredibly difficult? Yes. But <laughs> yeah, that I, was going to be my next question. It's like, that sounds amazing. I love that. But how do you get access to investors that are willing to invest in a film just based off the artistic merits? Well, you see, there's like a good writer. I, there's a, there's a, a theme running through this, this whole discourse for me. And I was talking about, you know, Patty Jenkins before. And uh, I was talking about an integrity of vision. And if you have a vision... Uh, people will follow. Uh, you know, Patty's story about how she put together uh, 
monster is equally difficult. She met a producer at a function, and she had a singular vision about what she wanted to do, and through back doors and channels got uh, you know, Charlize, and together they put the film together and they raised the money. Uh, different from my model, but similar in that both of us had a very clear vision about the film that we wanted to make. Uh, we had written the script, we believed in it, and we believed in the model, and I kept pounding and pounding and pounding away saying to everyone I met, this model works better. If you have the money first, first of all, you're in a position to negotiate with the actors. If you're attaching an actor to your project so that you can go raise money, the actors and their agents aren't stupid. They'll say, you need us more than right. uh, we need you. So you're going to pay maximum rate, and you're going to shoot at our convenience. And by the way, you may get an actor who's inappropriate for the role, but they might be the only actor that you get access to. They may be an actor whose career is over, but is looking for a payday. So now you get a, a, a tired actor uh, who's looking for a payday. You're paying them a lot of money, and now you're going out and trying to raise money to make a film that probably won't work because you've cast the wrong actor in the role only because uh, they're big in the Far East or wherever the market is where they, they're, they've created a value, and you've put the wrong actor in your movie. Uh, as I explained my vision to others, I said, look, I'm going to have the money first, so then I'm going to do the, all the actors that I want rather than the actors that I need and I'm going to fix the shooting date, and if they're available, I bet they'll come out and work because it's about something important, and if they're not doing anything else that day, why not? And it worked. Do, I, do, you, I, you know. do you have any tips on how to raise money without actors? Because, I mean, that's kind of what, that's exactly what I'm trying to do right now, too, is just try to get the money together any way I can so then I can, you know, approach actors just, just the way that you said, except on a much smaller scale. Like, I'm not going to be, I don't have as much money, so it'll be smaller actors. But I, Well, again, let me, let me start with the, 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 you don't have much money, smaller actors. What I'm trying to encourage you to, to believe is that you can get the biggest actors in the world for virtually no money if you've written a script about something important. I swear to you, it's true. <laughs> I swear to you. I know, I, I feel like I'm a, um, um, a evangelical here, but I'm trying to convince you. But it's absolutely true. Actors care about their art, about their craft profoundly. And if you write a great script and you have a vision and you believe in supporting actors, if you do things like improvisation, a backstory, uh, that you're interested in their input, that you're going to create an, an environment yeah. in which they feel safe and they can experiment, great actors want to work on those films. And you can get great actors to work on spell films. You have to believe that you can do that so that you will approach them. The reason most people don't get great actors is because they never even approach great actors because they don't believe they can get access to them. And I'm here to try to convince everybody you can get <laughs> access to anybody if you've written a script and you believe in that script and uh, you have a vision and if you raise that money first. And as to how to raise the money, again, it goes to the idea of, of selling this model to people, saying there's a reason we're not going to actors now. Don't make it a negative. Make it a positive. And this sounds very Californian, but I, uh, or Southern <laughs> Californian, but I, I mean no, this. That's good. You're saying, look, uh, if we went to actors now, they're going to charge us too much. And we're not going to get the right uh, cast. And we're going to be using actors who uh, we haven't even thought about just because they're available. Let's do something different. Let's create a radical model. Let's get a little bit of money from you and a little bit of money from you. Um, let's fix a shooting date. And then when we have these dates, here's a band of 10, 15, 20 actors who would be appropriate for this role. And here's a band of another 20 actors appropriate for another role. Now let's go to a casting director and say to this casting director, we have money. It's not a lot of money but we have money already. These are the actors that we have promised to our investors. Now, the investors will say, well, we still want a good actor in the film. And we say, you're going to get a good actor. 
but rather than one good actor that we're going to attach, here's 20 different actors who we hope one of them will say yes. But here's the deal that we'll make with you. Put the money in an escrow account. Don't give us the money. Put it in an escrow account, and that money will only be released when we have those actors that we've promised. One from that list of 20 for the male role, one from that list of 20 for the female role, and so on. Now, what's great about this radical model is that the investors are not risking any money at all until you secure an actor who theoretically matters in the marketplace. Hmm. The great thing about this also is that you don't have to secure those actors at that point. Right, and right. And the investors know that their money will only be released when you have two, three actors that matter, so suddenly the model becomes ideal. Now, when you go to approach those actors, you can say to their agents or managers, we have the money already. That's great because they'll read the script. Um, th we are approaching these other actors, but we're approaching you first. We have the shooting date so we can check their availability. If they're available that day, you may get them. And then all those things come together, uh, modify each other, support each other and, and as a concept in the actors' minds, and you get some great actors for your, your small film. Um, now, you talked about L.A. before. What's the other advantage of shooting in L.A.? Actors live down here. So now if uh, you're shooting in Los Angeles and you say to them, hey, we're shooting in uh, Beverly Hills, uh, 10 minutes from your house, uh, can we have you for one day on the 5th of September uh, to shoot a sequence for our film? We'll pay you uh, Schedule F. Uh, you've read the script. It's good. What do you say? Uh, the actors may say yes because it's just down the road from them. So even if you're in San Francisco, come down to L.A. for a couple of days to shoot with some actors that matter, that's a way uh, of doing it. Now, I'm judging from the silence from your listeners and from yourselves, you guys are thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. But it worked. It worked once, it worked twice, and it's about to work a third time for me on, on a movie. Uh, and again, does my career as a cinematographer matter? When I'm sitting with these actors and talking about the process of improv and backstory, not once do they ask me about uh, my views about cinematography. They're interested in my script that I wrote, or scripts, mm -hmm. and they're interested in my process of directing actors but not about me as a cinematographer. I have a question about, so if you if you get a, a name actor to come out for a day, let's say, how much prep work can you expect from them? Like they're, they'll sit down with you at least and talk about the material. Are they also going to go home and, and break down your, the, your script and really come oh. prepared for that day? Like what can you expect from them? Absolutely they will. Again, uh, the enthusiasm you offer them is enthusiasm that will be returned. So, uh, I would create, I do create with each character that I write, about 90 to 100 pages of backstory. So what I do is I, I write a character and then I try to imagine, after the script's written, what their life was like before the events that are portrayed in the movie. So I'll create a backstory about their childhood, about uh, their relationship with their parents, uh, their brothers, their sisters, their first teacher, their, their first traumatic experience. Uh, and is that something you give to the actors? Exactly right. And, then I give and, that to and the they actors. like it? Even like name, name they, actors are like, oh, they, this is awesome. They're not like, dude, stop doing my job for me. No, they love it. They absolutely love it. And they thank me. They say, I can't remember very often. They'll say, a director ever going to this trouble to mm. help me build character. And then what I say to them is, here are some ideas. These are just events that happen in this character's life. I never, same thing in my direction, I never say to them, play this emotion right. or play this idea. I simply provide a backdrop. And then I'll say, look, if you're available, I want to do some improvisation just before we shoot. Uh, not the improvisation of the scene that we're shooting, 
but improvisation of what happened just before the scene we're shooting. So you can put it in an emotional context. Mm. You would be amazed at the enthusiasm which with this is greeted from every actor at every level, uh, be it British trained, American trained, method or not. The fact that there's a director who is willing to help them facilitate performance, they are grateful. Actors want to be great actors. Actors need and want the support and guidance of a director. I never tell them how to play the role. I simply put it within a context of emotion and of history, which facilitates them. And they right. all uh, love it. And if you do this as a director, and if an actor knows that you care about facilitating the performance, uh, they're much more likely to sign on. Yeah, I'm always trying to just create a believable character that has a history that extends beyond the scene that you're seeing. So it never feels like it's just an actor on a stage, but it, it's like a living, breathing human being. And so it, it sounds like you're doing very similar thing to me and I love I love all that backstory and history. That's, well that's that exactly in. what you should, and also as a, as a writer, you know, there's this pervasive idea that scripts supposed to have three acts and uh, you know these plot points and all the stuff that these uh, script gurus float out there. There's a there's a problem with that with writing scripts like that is that as people then write, they're writing so the characters can supply the setup for the plot points, for the drama, mm. for the resolution, so right. on. And people don't speak in anticipation of their life's plot points. If you look at the films of Mike Lee, um, Michael will base his characters on a series of improvisations that last a year. He'll send his actors out into the community uh, where they are, are meant to come from, and they will get jobs there. And they will work as uh, dishwashers or plumbers or as uh, butchers. Um, in Happy Go Lucky... Uh, Eddie Marsden, who plays a driving instructor, actually got licensed as a driving instructor in preparation for the role. Wow. And what then happens is, as those characters then speak, and Mike would do a series of conversations, uh, of improvisations with these actors, and he would listen, and he would write the script based on their experiences that they had had in preparation for the role. And then he would create the dialogue from that. So when you hear Mike Lee dialogue, it's so much more real than the dialogue that comes out of people who uh, subscribe to this very regimented three-act structure. Because the characters are speaking as all as all speak, as, as we're speaking right now, jumping from subject to subject, uh, a combination of memory, imagination, and specific uh, My own personal wants and needs and desires. Exactly, which are yeah. very often inconsistent with the single, uh, you know, desire that a film character is supposed to portray that they they have a need uh they have an obstacle they overcome the obstacle to achieve uh you know what they want or need uh life isn't that simple and if characters are that simple at some level that barely conscious to an audience they don't seem real right so yeah. when you create more real characters when you base that on improvisation and inconsistency where characters can say things that aren't always in the service of plot but rather in service of their character that suddenly your script gets better, and more importantly, performance gets better, because the actor could portray something that is a real, living, breathing person. Awesome. Well, I was going to say we're running out of time, but and I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to run out of time to talk about the seminars that you're about to do. So before we jump to that, though, Ulrich, is there anything else you want to 
touch on? No, I mean, we could talk forever. Uh, I know, right? And, and, and just keep on going because it's so fascinating to hear your take on things and how you've, you've you know, made your movies, um, you know, made the lead to a director. I mean, I could probably hear a whole story about each film that you've directed and, and then <laughs> stories about the one that you're about to direct. So, right. but we should just save that for another episode, you know, later on. Right. Um, and just get into this whole teaching film um, subject. Yeah, so you have some seminars coming up. Is this the first time that you've taught seminars? Well, I've I've been teaching um, because, as you see, um, 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 I like to proselytize, and I've got a vision of what I think <laughs> film should be. Yeah, and I like to help others because I've been down all the roads they've been down. I've been an independent filmmaker. I know how hard it is to get a film made, uh, and I want to help. It's now become a compulsion of mine. So I began teaching back in England, um, you know, over 30 years ago, and I've been running uh, courses. And the important thing I learned, I learned how to teach. I learned how to take complex ideas and make them accessible to people who thought they weren't accessible before. Like understanding cinematography, if you're not a cinematographer, is something I'm uh, adept at. Understanding directing, uh, particularly directing actors, if you come out of a technical background, or what we've just been talking about, how to put together an independent film. So what I've done is, uh, with encouragement from those around me, they're saying, stop talking to us about this, uh, start putting it out to the world. So we decided to set up something called uh, somebodystudios.com. That's somebodystudios.com. Um, that's with an S at the end of studios. And on it, you'll see a thing that says seminars. And there are all these seminars about a lot of the things we've just been talking about. How to make the independent film. Uh, cinematography for the non-cinematographer. Uh, for people with a background in stills, how they can move over to cinematography. All those things. So uh, we're running those programs. Um, we encourage people to uh, you know, sign up really in this. Uh, I don't know when you guys, when you go out with this podcast, but uh, really by the end of the month, I think they're trying to get the numbers down so the more people sign up by the end of the month, uh, the better, so they know how many people we're broadcasting to. But uh, uh, once that happens, uh, then uh, people get access to uh, their coded uh, seminar and they can watch it as often as they like uh, you know, for over a month uh, to draw from it as they like. And then in addition to that, we're going to have uh, AMAs so people get direct access to me and can ask me questions like you guys have just asked me so I can help guide them in their uh, career choices and their creative decisions. Oh, cool. So these seminars, are the, you can do them both in person and online? Yeah, mainly it's going to be uh, online because uh, locking me down in person um, is kind of difficult because I travel so much. <laughs> right. So uh, right now it's going to be uh, uh, principally online, so we're encouraging people okay. to sign up there. But as I say, that they'll have access so they can view it, uh, and they can view as many as they like. And the AMAs I'm very excited about because you know now that I've gotten to a time in life where I want to give back, I like this opportunity I like to speak to the two of you and to others and say, look, here's my philosophy what do you think of it? Am I, am I crazy or am I simply full of it? <laughs> <laughs> I love the positivity. You got to say that, you know, yeah. it's, it's awesome. I would never say anyone's crazy. I say, if it works for you, it's, it's working. Like everyone has to kind of forge their own path and what works for you is probably not going to work for some other people, you know? And, but I You're love that right. you found a way to make it work. And I, 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 I've subscribed to your philosophy. I think it's great. Well, it, the belief is the, is the big thing. Look, I, it, it's, uh, it, it can be very grim and frightening because uh, if you're living off film uh, and you're particularly as a film producer, if you get a film made, uh, you're living. If you're not getting a film made, you're suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult way to live a life from feast or famine. But it's essential that you believe in uh, your vision of what you want to do. If people sense that 
you presume that you're going to fail, if people sense that uh, you've lost belief uh, in, in yourself or your ability to make that world valuable, they won't believe in you. So, uh, you know, it sounds uh, glib um, and it sounds uh, uh, dishonest, but ultimately I've come to believe that you've got to have a vision, you've got to positively approach that vision, and you've got to help guide people uh, to help you make the film that you want to make. Well, really well put. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing all your knowledge with us. It's awesome. yeah. it's it's been really great conversation to talk to you, and I'm sure we jumped around a lot, but there's so many good little nuggets in here that people are going to glom onto, and um, hopefully, there's people out there that are excited to hear more. And if you are, like, definitely check out the seminars page on Somebody Studios and see if there's something there that you, you might want to check out attend thanks guys and look uh this was uh, just you guys are real filmmakers uh, which uh is great for me to hear and, and I, i'm not sure i've completely convinced you yet uh, so uh, we should get back on the phone again and do this all again and then uh, uh a year from now you could describe to me how uh, your feature your new feature got made and and then you can give me a very small credit at the beginning of the film you know <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm just gonna say i'm gonna try steven i'm gonna go after the biggest actors in the world the biggest actors i can find and you know either through a casting director or just through my own approach approaches and and see how it goes you know and at least so i could say i tried you know i i and, i i can promise you that if your script is good uh if you have a vision and hopefully if you raise the money first you will be amazed and surprised uh how uh, good actors respond to a uh, good material and good people and if your script is not good well sorry Arik, you're fucked <laughs> <laughs> right exactly yeah your whole philosophy steve exactly. depends on the script being good but well and, and again you know. we talked about how to make the script good which is have your characters speak truthfully rather than serving plot points you'll find uh, you know I, I teach a screenwriting course here. i've got interns that work with me on my scripts and i always encourage them the first thing they should do is what i call a slop script which is have your characters speak but don't try to work them into a plot because first you've got to find out who the characters are, then do that backstory on characters, then write the script again based on your backstory and that first slop draft before you even start thinking about structure. If you delay structure until you've invented the characters in detail, your scripts invariably become uh, 50% better. Mm. Cool. Nice nice tip. I don't think I've ever done... Well, I don't know. I've definitely just started writing just to see what came out and not worrying about this or that or the other and just trying to get the story out onto the page you know exactly, exactly. but um but yeah i, I mean i for me i like just to like a lot of people believe in outlining 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 but i'm more of a just i gotta get it out because I've, I've definitely outlined but uh sometimes I, I get burnt out on the outline before i even get to the thing i, I would take one step further i would say outlines kill scripts um i would say <laughs> oh. um, wow don't don't do an outline don't plan right and then only when you've done that first slop draft, 120 pages, and just write every day, it should be done seven days or less, uh, five days ideally. Then wow. read what you write, have written, and you will discover suddenly and magically a character appearing on the page. Then go back and write that character's backstory. Then sit down and write the whole thing again. But now you'll find that your character speaks with a unique language, a slang, an argo they didn't have before. And then finally, as a last stage, you can start imposing structure. But uh, if you do uh, an outline first, you write an outline based on a character you don't know or understand as yet. Um, and that's why you've got to do that first slop draft. So believe me, I, 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 uh, when I started doing writing this way, my scripts became uh, much, much better. And I hope it encourages others to do the same. Mm -hmm. It's all about the wow. character, people. Focus Absolutely. on the character. 
Absolutely. So, Stephen, where can people find your work? Do you have uh, another website besides Somebody Studios, or? Uh, no, everything's pretty much there on Somebody Studios. There's a, uh, another page that goes on the projects we're currently working on. Um, you can certainly see uh, uh, Decoding Annie Parker on, you know, all the usual uh, platforms and uh, channels. It still appears at the cinema from time to time as well. My new film is called uh, Dominion, uh, based on the uh, last days of the poet Dylan Thomas with uh, John uh, Malkovich and uh, Reese Ifans and uh, Rome Ligari and Tony Hale and Zosha Mamet and a bunch of other really uh, uh, good Great actors. Cast. Um, yeah, wow. and uh, uh, I think my best writing and uh, looks like it's going to be coming out uh, later this year, which is great news in cinemas. Um, and that's uh, how people can find out about me. Awesome. And are you on Twitter, on Facebook? Is there any place people can reach out to you on social media? Um, I'm, I'm on uh, Facebook uh, as well. Um, I'm also uh, on Instagram. It's Steve Bernstein, director, uh, writer. Um, you'll find Steve Bernstein, director, on uh, Facebook as well. And I think you'll also find Steve Bernstein, um, I think it's called... Uh, uh, Steve Bernstein director on Twitter as well. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I don't mo- know my own Twitter handle, but the, <laughs> the other ones are, are right and correct, so you'll find your way to be one way or the other. We'll find awesome. it. Yeah, we'll include all these links in the show notes so people can find you. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Stephen. It's been a great conversation. Lots of fun to hear you know, your stories and your process and how you got to where you are today. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to... I think everyone's going to take a lot away from this conversation. I know so. I did. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'll probably re-listen to this one again after just to soak it in. And now now I'm like convinced on the seminars because before I was like, oh, well, why would I want to listen to the seminars, you know, when I have like the master classes, Aaron Sorkin, whatever, whatever. But it's really about your philosophy and, and your your personal experience that you bring to the table. So it's like, I don't know, I feel like the the best pitch is like if you listen to this conversation and you like what you're hearing, there's all these seminars to hear. So, yeah. Yeah. And Sounds I think, awesome. look, it's a combination of philosophies for all of us to develop our individual sensibilities. So, you know, each course and program has its value in its own way. But, you know, I was a cinematographer uh, and then I was a producer and a writer and director. So each thing informs the other, which gives me a different perspective than lots of other people. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to take us out. So thanks, everybody, for listening. You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find the links to the things that we talked about on this episode. We'll put some links to some of the trailers for uh, Steven's movies. Um, you know, s- s- more focus on the features, uh, the directed features, not necessarily the uh, you know water boys of the world because we've all seen those um <laughs> and you can find us on twitter and facebook at mmih podcast or send an email to podcast at making movies com if you have a question or you have a topic suggestion for the show or feedback whatever send us an email we love those or you just want to tell us kill yourselves you guys suck well <laughs> i hope that we don't get those emails because that would be disheartening hopefully it's more like keep on going make your movies okay positive emails only yeah Great. well no whatever you want whatever you want fine i don't care um and if you like the show, please help us get the word out by telling a friend or, or leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. We love those. Um, you don't have to leave a written review if you don't want. You can just do a, a rating review. Those are nice as well. And thank you so much, Stephen and Timothy, for being on the show or being on the show for just talking. <laughs> for taking time great. out of your busy morning to come on. And exactly. Talk. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. All right, guys. Talk to you later. See you later. Bye-bye. 
Okay, Liz, if Stephen was on the show today, what is the one question you'd ask him? Well, I'm doing some research on him right now while we record this. And it seems as if he's moved a little bit more into writing and directing. I don't see a ton. I mean, I think the reason we might have had some trouble finding out exactly what he's doing right now is because the he did shoot something in 2020. But then like the last thing he shot was like 2013. Oh, so I would be curious if he had kind of similar travails that we hear on the show about how hard it is to get projects off the ground, even though he's so decorated as a cinematographer and has worked so well and so seamlessly within the studio system. So I'd just be curious, like, if he's leaning more towards generating truly independent content or if he's still trying to work within the system that he worked within as a cinematographer. Well, interesting, because, like, yeah, totally moving moving into directing, writing and directing. So, like, I think yeah. that's a whole conversation that I would want to talk about. It's, like, deciding to make that switch and, like, what what was that like when going from, you know, just focusing on being a DP to being a writer-director, which we might have talked a, a little bit about last time because it looks like he did direct, had directed things already before we had talked to him. But, yeah, I think that would be an interesting line of questioning for for Steven. But, yeah, this was a good episode. I don't know if you ever heard this one, Liz, but I really no. liked this conversation. <laughs> it was... Uh, it's probably worth checking checking out. You know, I don't I don't even listen to podcasts anymore, so I should be the one to talk. But <laughs> it's a good one. But yeah, I think it's time for us to move on to you're the expert. So this is a new question that Eric has devised for us, just so people know what you're the expert is. Basically, Eric has like thought of a question that Liz or I should have the definite definitive answer to, or at least a really you know thought out and you know useful answer to to this question. That hence you're the expert. We should be the experts on this. So yeah, let's let's take a stab. Do you need to move to LA, New York, or another major city in order to have a career in the film industry? Go. We've talked about this a lot. This has come up a lot, but I will kind of again just summarize various arguments I have made in the past on this show. I don't think you need to if you are a writer or a director. I do think you need to if you are well, uh, you need to be near a production hub to some degree if you want to make a living as a cinematographer or a gaffer or a AD or, you know, all of these like various production positions or, you know, and, and I understand there are workflows you could create in post-production that allow for virtual support, but I do think you're going to find more mixing stages and recording spaces and sound and post-production editorial suites, things like that. But if you're a writer or director, as a writer, you can, we've, we've done interviews of amazing writers on the show who placed in contests, found representation, submitted cold queries, found representation. Your representation, I think, needs to be LA, New York. You may not have to be. And as a director, if you want to work in the micro budget or lower budget, truly independent space, you do not need to be in LA or New York. But I think the obvious answer is if you really want to make studio features, this, you know, you, that's where you need to be eventually is LA. And not even necessarily to live permanently, but you have to establish relationships here in order to create some sort of runway for yourself in the studio world. Yeah, I co-sign that for, for the most part. I think that like, 
you know, the other, the other role I would say that's like really important to be in like either New York or Los Angeles or maybe Atlanta these days is an actor. Like if you want to be an actor, like I don't think you can really get your career off the ground so much, you know. Well, if, if, he, unless it's a theater actor, right? Like Minneapolis is a great theater city, you know, so it's yeah. like you could make a living outside, but I, I agree with what you're saying. If you want to be in TV or yeah, studio TV or movies. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I just think that like e- even for, indie films like you know we do a lot of casting out of los angeles anyways like and and that's for like anyone in any part of the country really you know i think most people look to to new york or los angeles to find like their big lead talents and then they like fill in with local actors for the other roles you know obviously there's exceptions to that rule like i worked with a local talent for my feature and you know like i think a lot of people do that too but i think if you really want to like be climbing the ladder to be like you know in big budget things or like to be established like as a working actor in movies or television like being in los angeles or new york is kind of like important for that you know but yeah i also think for the 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 crew positions like having come up as a crew member in San Francisco, like I think that's where like just being in any major city is kind of helpful as long as you're like okay with not like TVs and movies not being the main thing that you work on. Like if you're okay with like corporate video and commercials being your main ba- bag, then like yeah, any major city in any state in the country is probably going to be okay. Like the bigger ones are better, you know, of course, like there's, there's going to be more work. But like every major city has businesses that need people to do videos for them. And there, every major city has crews shooting things. But I, I would say that like Chicago and New York and, you know, San Francisco, even for corporate and then LA, like they're just going to be, there's going to be more work, you know, to be found. And then if you want to focus on narrative, then yeah, of course, New York or Los Angeles is probably where it's at or Atlanta too. Atlanta is huge or too. Or Austin or, I mean, it's like, I know yeah. that they're tougher markets to break in because they're so close knit. But like I've thanks to one of the producers I work with a lot, Elena Weinberg, I started to get to know some Austin based filmmakers and actors and crew people. And it's like they're so impressive and prolific and in Texas. Right. But it's like were I just to move there. I would have to do a lot of ground game in order to get people to trust me because it's so, you know, like close, closed up tight. Mm -hmm. I do. I do think about this a lot, though. Right. Like I live in Los Angeles and I'm really trying to break out of this, but I'm a little bit of a hermit. And I know I've established networking relationships through going to USC and working at Sundance. So I did kind of my the work a few years ago in order to build relationships that are now kind of coming to fruition. But it's like, I would say only if you really are going to utilize that location, is it important, right? It's like, had I not gone to USC or worked at Sundance, but lived in Los Angeles and I'm still like weird shy Liz who doesn't leave the house and just goes for these like hikes. It's like, why am I in Los Angeles? Why am I spending 10 times the amount of money anyone else does for a taco. <laughs> I'm like, why am I doing that? So like you, as as we often encourage people to do, really like audit yourself and your personality. And like, are you going to invest the time and resources needed to make the most of your location? And if not, you you will be able to find a home of artists where you live, even if it's in the middle of the nowhere. I know 
there are pockets in every single part of this country. So to be an artist, you can be anywhere. Yeah, totally. I I feel like that's a really good point about utilizing the place you're going to. Like if you're going to go to New York or Los Angeles, but you're not going to like participate, you know, then that's going to be a much more difficult for you, you know, and and not worth it necessarily. Like I know lots of people who have moved to Los Angeles and just gotten like copywriting jobs or teaching jobs or whatever. And then like, you know, before you know it, they're completely out of the industry and they're not, (laughs) not doing what they came there to do anymore at all. You know, and so I think like the important part of that moving to is to like make sure that you're like getting yourself in the system somehow or like playing the game. And and your example of like going to USC and then also working for Sundance is like the perfect example of how to like become a part of of the community, you know. But I do I would say like if you're not going to move to those places like you've got to be making stuff. Like if if you write like scripts and and you're a prolific, prolific writer or you're making movies like that is like the key to like un- unlocking like the entry point into the career is like making things and sharing it with people. So, you know, I think like, yeah, making sure that you are submitting your films to f- your to film festivals or that you're like, you know, applying to contests, you're like, you know, doing the effort to like, you know, get yourself ready to the next level, then maybe moving to L- LA or New York would make sense for you once you like are able to get a manager or get some attention for your career or whatever, you know, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think like just making stuff to me is like the really important, like ingredient to all of this, you know, e- even if you do move to Los Angeles, you should move to Los Angeles and make things, you know, hundred yeah. percent. Well, do you, the people out there listening to us in TV land, are you in agreement <laughs> with us? Do you want to yell at us and shake, shake your fist at us? Let us know. Send us a comment, suggestion, or question to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our bonus episode editor, Jeff Reimut, who's also our regular episode editor, for always doing the editing. Thank you to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome and for being on this show. Well, ooh, and for interviewing Checo earlier this week. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Okay. And <laughs> thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.